Welcome to Dr. M's Women and Children First podcast. I'm your host, Dr. M, and today we're going to do a follow-up on the excellent interview with Dr. Richard Johnson on Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. If you have not listened to the original podcast, I would encourage you to go to Apple Podcasts or Amazon Music and listen to number 14 with Dr. Johnson, and then come back to this podcast. But Nonetheless, if you didn't have a chance to uh, listen to the podcast and you did decide to follow this one right away, let me introduce Dr. Johnson to you. He is the Thomas Burrell Professor of Medicine and the Chief of the Renal Division and Hypertension at the University of Colorado. He's also a graduate of the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and he majored in anthropology, which is what makes him such an interesting guest to interview. He has spent the better part of his career exploring the role of fructose metabolism, especially the generation of the chemical uric acid, in driving many of the uh, abnormalities of human metabolism that we see these days, including metabolic syndrome, obesity, and all of the associated problems. This book that we're talking about, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat, is a tour de force of the entire pathway of survival by metabolic events in the body related to fructose and something we call the polyol pathway. The book is a must-read. I highly encourage you to get a copy. Um, It came out on February 8th, and it is fantastic. Uh, My copy is dog-eared, underlined, and completely uh, taken apart. That being said, uh, the book, as I said, is excellent, and today we're going to break it down a little bit further. Actually, what I'm really going to try to do is condense Nature Wants Us to Be Fat, this outstanding book, into the news to use for you, the listener. It was a daunting task over the past couple weeks, as the book is 200 pages with almost no wasted pages, which is an uncommon event for a book of this type. So, Nature Wants Us to Be Fat. You know, this is what Dr. Rick Johnson says to us in this podcast. I found his interview to be incredibly stimulating because of his perspective. As an anthropologist-nephrologist, and certified onion peeler of problems, he broke down the issues of obesity and metabolic syndrome from a root cause perspective. By driving his intellectual train toward the beginnings of disease, he found a mechanistic pathway to survival long hidden to humans. To recap the story, we have to go back many, many, many years ago when humans developed a mutation in an enzyme called uricase. The mutation allowed the chemical uric acid, a byproduct of protein fructose or fruit sugar, and DNA-RNA degradation to increase in the bloodstream and tissues. At first blush, this mutation made little sense when we look at the historical effects and diseases of excess uric acid. Why would humans want to increase uric acid metabolically, which in excess causes uric acid crystals to form and deposit in tissues, causing pain and inflammation in a disease known as gout? This disease has haunted humanity for thousands of years. So there must have been another reason that provided a benefit. This is where the story gets mighty interesting. Scientists knew that consuming protein-based food types, like meats, would raise uric acid levels. When I was in medical school, uric acid was solely discussed in the context of overload and gout. The cause was always discussed as genetic risk coupled to excess protein intake. We never looked at the benefit or other root cause of uric acid elevations. I often remember many lectures in medical school using the word idiopathic, meaning we have no idea, or junk DNA, as if there's something in our corpus that is truly junk. I never liked these terms as they left me feeling inadequate about a perfect system being called less than. However, when you're a scientist with an anthropologic bend, as Dr. Johnson is, you see the world with a lens that says that there are very few mutations in our genes that offer no benefit for fitness or survival. Hence, he began the search for the why. Why are we benefiting from a mutation in the enzyme uricase? It's an interesting question. So he spent a lot of time finding the answers. The initial answer was derived by his study of how the uricase mutation allowed early apes to survive periods of food scarcity in Europe. This survival reality came in two major shapes. First, the uricase mutation allowed for apes to change metabolically when they consume fructose in volume. The enzyme mutation leading to higher uric acid levels turned on a survival switch, producing fat in the liver and periphery while also turning on hunger, foraging behaviors, reduced energy use, increased blood pressure, and more. These metabolic downstream effects of fructose or fruit sugar consumption allowed an animal to store these calories for a rainy day or a period of food scarcity and thus survive, allowing the mutation to flourish. 
the apes without this mutation died by natural selection during periods of food scarcity, or the Ice Age. We carry this same mutation allowing humans to also use fructose sugar as a survival switch initiation event. The second part of his amazing story was that fructose alone did not account for all of these survival changes. Humans also developed a second useful ability, the ability to make fructose inside our bodies. This ability is driven by something called the polyol pathway, whereby humans can convert excess sugar into sorbitol, excess glucose for that matter, into sorbitol, and then onto fructose, which begins the whole survival switch into play again. So this is going to get a little confusing, so I'm going to try and break this down again, the difference between glucose and fructose and why it matters, because it matters, it turns out, very, very much. So first, let's start with a deeper dive into the uricase mutation. In his book, Dr. Johnson says, and I quote, here's what we know so far. Animals in the wild regulate their weight tightly, such that they only have a modest amount of fat. However, in preparation for situations in which food may not be available, many animals undergo a biological change in which they become excessively hungry and forage intently for food, while reducing energy expenditure when they rest. They maximize fat accumulation by increasing fat production and reducing the amount of fat burned. And they become insulin resistant to ensure sufficient glucose will be available for the brain. In essence, they initiate a comprehensive survival response that allows them to store enough fat to survive the winter in hibernation or to migrate to a more, hus more hospitable environment. End quote. Again, we see humans and other animals choosing to live for the next day through behaviors of benefit as dictated by their ancestors. From a general health perspective, being mildly replete with peripheral fat stores is very beneficial. If the fat stores are peripheral, on your hips or waist, and not around your organs, the fat is associated with better survival during periods of infectious illness or cancer. The reason for this effect is that humans maintain minimal stores of sugar as glycogen in the muscle and liver to burn for energy in the mitochondrial power centers of the cell, roughly have a one to two day storage amount. Thus, during a prolonged fast related to illness, the energy generation must come from fat or protein. If there is no fat, then the body will burn protein, which depletes your muscle mass and is associated with worse outcomes, especially since your heart is a muscle. The key to these survival benefits is the volume of fat. Too much fat becomes immunologically detrimental via chronic inflammation and is associated with aging and worse health outcomes. Being skinny remains completely beneficial if you never experience a severe famine or illness. So, just like everything we think about in life, there is a push-pull, a tight regulation, and you have to find the balance points. What can animals tell us about this fat theory? Let's look at a few poignant examples. When a bear, when a bear prepares to hibernate for the winter, it will eat hundreds of pounds of honey and fruit a day in autumn in order to produce a lot of fat for the winter slumber. This occurs by the animal becoming insulin resistant, i.e. the glucose sugar is not allowed into the muscle, driving it to the liver in high concentrations where it is converted to fat, ultimately forming a fatty liver, or it is transported as triglycerides into the peripheral adipose tissue around the body. The bear will gain a ton of fat weight, crawl into a cave, and sleep. During this hibernation process, the bear's metabolic rate slows significantly to reduce the daily energy burn and preserve fat stores. They go into systemic, quote, low power mode, as Dr. Johnson calls it. Only one place receives a constant supply of energy, the brain. This again is adaptive for survival. If your brain goes too low power while you slumber, you may get taken out by a tiger. Thus the brain, even in hibernation, remains energy full by glucose until all glucose stores are depleted whereby the brain switches to ketones from oxidized fat cells. This occurs when the insulin resistance phase ends, allowing the bear to start to burn the stored fat for fuel. The lower metabolic rate and then slow fat burn over time allows the animal to survive over the hibernation period where food is scarce and the winter conditions are inhospitable. But the brain is aware enough to avoid predation. When hibernation ends, the animal is now back to square one pre-metabolic shift for survival. Interestingly, these changes correspond with the availability of these foods for the animal as nature provides. There was always a plan. As Dr. Johnson says in his book, metabolic syndrome is an insurance plan against starvation and death. For humans today, it is a sign of excesses of our time. Flipping to the other side of the coin, let's look at a hummingbird. The hummingbird is completely different in its way of living. They live in the fast lane. 
With a heart rate of over 1,200 beats per minute and 250 breaths per minute, the metabolic demands of a hummingbird are exceedingly high. Thus, the hummingbird must drink a lot of sugar nectar to gain energy during the day. In fact, it drinks four times its body weight in nectar daily. This large volume of sugar provides a massive fat load by nighttime, up to 40% of its overall weight. The blood glucose level in the hummingbird at night is 700 milligrams per deciliter. In point of reference, we're walking around somewhere around 80 to 100 on a daily basis. If you're at 700 milligrams per deciliter as a human, you're in what's called diabetic ketoacidosis and you're trying to die. This is a sign of diabetes in the initial stage. That means you're going to the hospital. But this little hummingbird is living at this 700 milligrams per deciliter every single night. Fascinatingly, by morning, all of these events are reversed. The bird is skinny, the blood sugar is normal, and in fact, the animal acts like a hibernating creature every night. So it drinks tons of fruit sugar as nectar, gets insulin resistant, fatty liver, and overweight, starves throughout the night, loses all that fat, and is back to the same thing in the morning, starting the cycle all over again. So we have two complete polar opposite views of how animals use sugar. What's the process by which animals have this type of adaptability? Let's go to the mechanisms. So time to enter the fructose story. When a human or an animal consumes sugar, what we call sucrose, they are consuming two molecules. One is glucose and the other is fructose or fructose. Glucose is metabolized all over the body and is broken down into something called pyruvate, which via a series of reactions in the energy powerhouse of the cell called the mitochondria becomes adenosine triphosphate or ATP, which is a massive energy source. We use ATP in cells all over our body to generate movement and muscle, propagate nerve impulses, or to help catalyze enzymatic reactions among other events. It is critical for our survival. Fructose, or fruit sugar, the other half of the disaccharide table sugar sucrose, on the other hand, is primarily metabolized in the liver and minimally in the small intestine and kidneys. For a long time, physicians did not understand the metabolism of fructose as it related to human health. Recent discoveries are shedding light on this issue. The science here is the key. In order to understand fructose metabolism, we need to first look at glucose metabolism. Glucose goes through a series of steps to become pyruvate and then enter the mitochondria and something called the Krebs cycle, an important step in generating lots and lots of cellular energy as ATP. When glucose is broken down to pyruvate, a little ATP has to be used to make the enzymatic reaction proceed to produce a lot more ATP downstream. A phosphate molecule is liberated from the ATP, releasing energy and lowering the energy of the cell and also lowering the phosphate level. With glucose though, there is a regulatory step that stops the enzyme from working if the cell's phosphate or energy level drops too low, thus preventing any more glucose from being turned into pyruvate. This prevents too much glucose from being broken down when not needed. For fructose metabolism, the process is similar with an enzyme called phosphofructokinase taking a phosphate from ATP and adding it to the fructose as the first step. The same event occurs with a phosphate molecule being liberated from ATP, releasing energy, and lowering the energy of the cell, and also lowering the phosphate level, as each phosphate is taken to bind fructose. This time, however, there is no regulatory feedback allowing fructose to be metabolized ad nauseum. This is going to turn out to be very important. This differential between glucose metabolism and fructose metabolism truly is this one regulatory step. Let me pause for a second. So you might be asking, does this mean that eating fruits is dangerous? The answer in general is no, and we'll get, that, we'll get to that later a lot more. But the reason is that the intestines digest whole fruit more slowly because of the fiber that accompanies the fruit, allowing the intestines to convert the fructose to glucose for use or storage as glycogen or fat, unless the volume of fruit is very, very high, overwhelming the intestines' ability to perform this task thus sending lots of fructose to the liver. This is exactly what happens now with juices, soda, sweet tea, sweet cakes, processed foods. Let me explain. All right, let's go back to the story. So let's say you have a child. They're flooding their liver with fructose as a bolus of apple juice. The fructose gets broken down very rapidly, causing the cell's energy and phosphate levels to plummet. 
This event signals an alarm in the animal or human that they need more energy. Thus, the animal begins a process of slowing metabolism, reducing insulin sensitivity, storing fat, triggering hunger, and foraging behaviors. You may ask, why did this happen a long time ago when sugar beverages were not available? The answer was based on the volume of fruit consumed. If it was large enough, like an orangutan eating 100 pounds of fruit, it would overwhelm the intestines and trigger the switch anyway. So these genes were there for a reason a long time ago. We're just activating them now in improper ways, specifically through the use of these beverages as food sources. Okay, in specific, how does this alarm signal cause these events to happen? As I just said, the addition of the phosphate to fructose causes a drop in intracellular phosphate levels. The more fructose presented to the liver, the more the phosphate is removed, which triggers an enzyme known as AMPD, or adenosine monophosphate deaminase, to turn on and break down the adenosine diphosphate to adenosine monophosphate, and ultimately to uric acid, which is the main part of the story. The uric acid is the main driver of the metabolic effects of increased blood pressure, fat storage, and insulin resistance via mitochondrial oxidative stress, which I'll explain in a minute. However, before we go there, there are two competing enzymes that are basically a fork in the road of metabolism, and these two are very, very important, and we're going to talk about them in multiple podcasts as time goes on. Adenosine monophosphate kinase and adenosine monophosphate deaminase essentially do opposite things. The kinase adds phosphates to adenosine monophosphate, turning it back into ATP, our big energy powerhouse, while adenosine deaminase takes AMP and says, let's go to uric acid, which is an end product and can't go back to ATP at that point. When cellular energy is low, AMPK, the kinase, is turned on to break down fats and utilize glucose for energy production as well as blockage of fat formation, essentially saying, hey, we need energy, let's make some and let's use it, let's not store it. This event occurs in low blood sugar states. The flip side occurs when we are well-fed, AMPK turns off, and AMPD, the deaminase, turns on to encourage the storage of glucose as fat. This is tricky. Now the fructose comes in and does something similar by turning on AMPD, but now it does it in an unregulated fashion, driving massive levels of uric acid production. So in essence, the fructose ingestion triggers a cascade of events that is unregulated in animals, leading to fat production and storage for a rainy day. This is clearly a benefit for survival evolutionarily. We needed this in periods of food scarcity. All right. Now let's take a closer look at uric acid itself. The breakdown product of fructose metabolism, uric acid, is now rising in the liver and the bloodstream because we don't have the uricase mutation to break it down like we talked about earlier. The excess fructose consumption is driving ever more uric acid production as sort of that, you know, that substrate, substrate product event, which leads to effects on the cell's energy powerhouse, the mitochondria being irritated by oxygen-based chemicals called oxidants that are produced by an enzyme called NADPH oxidase, which is upregulated by uric acid. These chemicals are produced anytime we as humans burn sugar, fat, or protein macronutrients by using oxygen in the chemical reaction inside the mitochondria. The oxygen used becomes an oxygen radical with an unpaired electron. If you go back to physics, a little electron hanging out on the side, it's not paired, so it is in an unstable state. That can damage cells, including the powerhouse, those mitochondria inside the cell that generated it in the first place. This is how we become aged. This is how we get old over time. Oxidation causes lots of damage. However, you've heard of the term antioxidant. You see this a lot on food products and different um, supplements that people take, right? The term antioxidant is used to describe plant materials that plants actually have de novo that we consume by eating them, that they have the antidote to this electron, leaving it benign. So an antioxidant has an unpaired electron that grabs the generated oxygen radical in our body and pairs it, making it benign. Think of vitamin C here. If you can't neutralize the oxidant through dietary antioxidants, then the mitochondria will be damaged over time, as we spoke about. Dr. Johnson's lab actually showed that giving vitamin C in animal models could block the negative effects of uric acid oxidation damage, reducing the survival switch effect. So 
This is some fascinating stuff here, folks. Again, thinking about, you know, if you produce oxygen radicals through excess fructose generation via uric acid, causing these uh, oxygen radicals to damage our system, we can actually reverse some of this by taking antioxidants, i.e. eating high-quality foods. Right? And we'll get a little bit more into this as we talk later, but there's some really interesting stuff going on. So mechanistically, these uric acid-associated oxidant radicals then inhibit the enzyme activity of something called enoyl-CoA hydratase. Now, we need to know this because you know, enoyl-CoA hydratase reduces the activity of fatty acid oxidation and fat burning in general, causing weight gain. Again, this is important, right? So if you're not burning fat, you're storing fat. Anything that causes this enzyme to, to do this is going to make us heavier. Oxidative stress also happens to inhibit the enzyme aconitase, which in turn increases the amino acid citrate, driving fat production in the liver. The double whammy for historical survival or now metabolic disease has just occurred. Fructose metabolism further drives down cellular energy, leading to hunger and foraging behaviors through leptin resistance. Leptin is a satiety hormone that is activated when we are well-fed. So now we see we have the trifecta of trouble. We have blockage of fat breakdown, increased fat production, and stimulation of hunger despite the excess of calories being consumed or have been consumed. Now, this is all being driven by fructose. All this makes complete sense when you want to fight against a normal weight level in order to grow bigger to survive hibernation or starvation event. Right? So if you're eating glucose, you're not going to be allowed to make lots of fat because the regulatory, hormone, regulatory system I mean, is going to kick in and stop the production. However, in the fructose situation, there is no regulation of this. So you don't have the ability to stop gaining weight. You will keep gaining weight as long as you keep eating fructose. So fructose and in turn uric acid drives a starvation signal to the metabolic system by driving intracellular energy lower no matter the fat stores that are available. This mechanism is brilliant historically until we eat without ever going through a period of prolonged, fat, prolonged fast no longer a survival mechanism for us. Now it becomes a disease trigger. Uric acid also reduces the effects of adenosine monophosphate kinase, AMPK, which decreases ATP production, making us feel energy poor even when we're calorie replete. This is critical to the obesity story. Because of these survival pathways, people that carry excess weight still feel tired and hungry. It's a cruel trick that once served us, but now is tragic. So I think back to years and years when people would make fun of obese people for sitting and being exhausted when you have tons of calories on board. It's not their fault, folks. If you happen to consume these foods, you're actually getting a signal to your body to rest more, forage for food, slow down your metabolism. You don't want to move. It's a tragic, tragic trick of modern times. Great thing in the old days, not so good anymore. So let's recap. Consuming a fructose causes an unregulated change in energy cell in the energy of the cell when it's being metabolized. That turns on a cascade of events we call the survival switch. The events that occur in the survival switch are number one, hunger. It's driven by these low ATP levels, which stimulates starvation, and by leptin resistance which prevents us from recognizing when we are full. It stimulates cravings, driven by fructose metabolism in the intestines and possibly the brain. Foraging behaviors are turned on, aids in the search for food in unfamiliar areas, including risk-taking, impulsiveness, and rapid decision-making and aggression. It increases food intake, driven by hunger and cravings, and achieved through foraging behaviors. It reduces metabolism when at rest, allows the body to conserve energy when not needed for foraging, likely from effects on mitochondrial function. It increases fat, otherwise known as fat accumulation. The result of a combination of increased production and decreased fat burning of, is the problem. It's caused by the oxidative stress, as we discussed, to the mitochondria, especially in the liver. Survival switch turns on glycogen storage. Produced in the liver alongside fat with the activation of the survival switch, provides another source of stored energy and metabolic water similar to fat. 
Unlike fat, it contains water, in addition to making water when metabolized, which it obtains from the blood. We turn on thirst, likely stimulated by increased glycogen production, which stimulates dehydration when removing water from the blood. We have insulin resistance, makes more glucose available to the brain to fuel the quick decisions required to survive while foraging or in hibernation, linked with oxidative stress to the mitochondria. We have increases in blood pressure, maintains circulation in the case of dehydration or low availability of salt, driven in part by the effects of uric acid. We have salt retention, which supports circulation and blood volume, driven by the effects of fructose on the kidney. We have low-grade inflammation, which provides some defense against infections such as malaria, likely driven in part by the effects again of uric acid. And it also helps us reduce oxygen needs, helps animals survive when oxygen levels are low. The metabolism of fructose depresses mitochondrial function and shifts energy production to a more primitive system called glycolysis. That does not require oxygen the way it does in the mitochondria. So there's a lot, a lot, a lot of survival mechanisms there that are put into play by the consumption of fructose. And it's important that we recognize that all of those events are beneficial in the right environmental systems. They're not beneficial in our current system. Okay, now that we understand the uric case, uric acid survival switch story, let's go on to part two. In his book, Dr. Johnson noted that despite his early work with fructose being the apparent complete answer to obesity and metabolic disease, it was not to be. It was a big part, but there was more to the story. He noted that people on diets devoid of fructose still had fructose in their system when measured and could achieve the same metabolic derangements without consuming fructose. So now we have to usher in the polyol pathway. I'm going to read directly from his book as he wrote this in such a good way, I don't want to paraphrase it. The great assumption that we, as well as the rest of the world, were making was that the only fructose that mattered when it came to health and disease was the fructose we consumed. Our big discovery was that there is another major source of fructose that can trigger the survival switch and thus cause obesity and metabolic syndrome, and that's the fructose that our bodies made. Scientists have known for decades that the body can make fructose, a special biological process known as the polyol pathway, first converts glucose to a substance known as sorbitol, then further converts the sorbitol to fructose. But while the polyol pathway is well known, it is generally thought to be minimally active in most people, such that it produced an inconsequential amount of fructose. The polyol pathway plays a role in early pregnancy as well as in the kidney, where it helps in the reabsorption of water in response to dehydration. But it is best known for its activation in diabetes, where high blood glucose levels trigger the production of sorbitol and fructose. There is even some evidence that the sorbitol generated in diabetes can contribute to some of the medical complications associated with the disease, such as cataracts and nerve damage. However, there was little concern in the literature about the fructose made by the same pathway. Now, you may recognize the name sorbitol <clears throat> as an artificial sweetener that is often added to sugar-free syrups and sugar-free drinks. Unfortunately, this sorbitol is turned into sugar as fructose in the body. So this is another thing we're going to have to pay attention to over time. Now, back to the story. This would all change when molecular biologist Miguel Lanaspa, L-A-N-A-S-P-A, joined Dr. Johnson's laboratory in 2010. By coincidence, Miguel had studied the polyol pathway with his previous mentor. Early on, he and I had several discussions, I being Dr. Johnson, I'm reading from the book, about whether the fructose made from the polyol pathway might play a role in certain diabetes complications such as weight gain worsening insulin resistance, fatty liver, and kidney disease, a fertile topic for study. One day I shared with Miguel my concerns about the evidence that one could develop obesity and metabolic syndrome from carbohydrates, even if they did not contain fructose. Miguel then proposed a very exciting possibility. What if eating certain carbohydrates released so much glucose following digestion that it mimicked the diabetic state, activating the polyol pathway and generating fructose? When glucose is absorbed, it must first pass through the liver, where much of it is metabolized before it reaches the bloodstream. 
Therefore, the liver sees the highest glucose concentrations and would be the site where the most fructose is produced. As we learned previously, the liver is also critical organ for where fructose metabolism drives a survival switch. If these high levels of glucose lead to production of sufficient fructose, it might trigger the survival switch without one having to ingest fructose at all, thus explaining why Jimmy Moore had to reduce all carbohydrates in order to lose weight. It was a great hypothesis, but of course we needed to test it. We decided to do so by adding pure glucose to drinking water of laboratory mice. This ensured high concentrations of glucose in the gut and therefore high concentrations of glucose reaching the liver and then the bloodstream beyond. This first thing was noted was how much the animals liked to drink glucose. They drank as much or more water containing glucose as mice offered water containing the same concentrations of sucrose, high fructose corn syrup, or fructose itself. They also ate more food and started becoming fat and insulin resistant. For someone like me, who had previously believed that fructose was the only carbohydrate that could cause metabolic syndrome, the experiment was off to a depressing start. I'm going to pause here. So just note with how excellent the thinking processes of Dr. Johnson. He could have settled into his prior beliefs that he had written in his first book, The Fat Switch, and been completely content that he had figured it out. But he found a hole in his story by Jimmy Moore gaining weight despite being completely off fructose. And so he kept peeling the onion, which is one of the reasons I find him to be one of the better researchers that I've ever spoken with. Okay, back to the story. Over the next few months, the mice became super fat, so rotund that they waddled when they walked. They also developed insulin resistance and fatty liver. The moment of truth came at the end of the experiment when we found very high levels of fructose in their livers, even though they had been eating no fructose at all. We also found evidence that the polyol pathway was turned on, as shown by high levels of one of the enzymes involved. Miguel was right. To understand how the fructose being produced affected the development of obesity and metabolic syndrome, we also gave glucose to mice that had been genetically altered such that they could not metabolize fructose. These mice could metabolize glucose normally and drank the same amount of glucose as the original mice. But that is where the similarities ended. Unlike the original mice that had been given glucose, these special mice developed much less obesity and were almost completely protected from developing fatty liver and insulin resistance. We also performed another study, this time using mice that lacked the ability to make fructose due to removal of a gene encoding for one of the key enzymes in the polyol pathway. These mice, too, still like glucose, but were similarly protected from developing obesity metabolic syndrome. It was a major breakthrough, simultaneously exhilarating and depressing. It was not just the fructose we ate was causing obesity, but the fructose we make. What is more, glucose, a major component of the carbohydrates in our diet, could be converted to fructose in our body. Yes, there was a little evidence that glucose itself could cause some obesity for the animals that received glucose, but whose fructose production or metabolic system was blocked still gained some weight compared to the mice on a normal diet. However, much of the weight gain and almost all the insulin resistance of fatty liver that follows high intake of glucose appears due to fructose that the body makes from glucose. So, we now know that the polyol pathway can make fructose inside the body from glucose within the liver and thus trigger the survival switch leading to all the downstream effects. This is where if you listen to the insulin resistance podcast from a few months ago, you now have to bring in the work of Dr. Jerry Schulman. If we for any reason have high levels of blood glucose, we can trigger the production of sorbitol and then fructose leading to the survival switch and these downstream effects of metabolic syndrome. Let me go back over Dr. Schulman's work briefly. Overconsumed fats or sugars can produce excess free fatty acids as diacylglycerol or DAG that are precursors to triacylglycerol, which is a fat storage system that we use throughout our body, which is where we store our fat in our adipose tissue and liver. The diacylglycerol um, from the free fatty acids are causing the muscle cells to not trigger the nucleus to produce something called glucose transporter 4, or GLUT4, which would allow glucose to enter the liver or muscle cell to be stored as glycogen and or burned as fuel. Instead, it triggers the evolutionary beneficial fat production and storage system. This furthers our dysfunction story. The combination of excess sugar and fat ingested simultaneously has provided a nutrient gradient with glucose levels rising in the blood 
forcing the pancreas to pump out ever more insulin, which in turn forces the liver to convert the excess sugar into fat free fatty acids, which are packaged as lipoproteins and transported to all of our fat cells throughout the body, driving obesity. But it also furthers the insulin resistance through the diacylglycerol, blocking the production of this GLUT4 transporter in the muscle. And then eventually we become diabetic or have heart disease. Essentially, we're left with the excesses of our choices, damaging our most vital organs once the immune system gets involved. So we're, we're taking a tour through Nature Wants Us to Be Fat with Dr. Johnson's work, but now you're seeing how we can tie in other previous stories around research with Dr. Jerry Shulman and others. You know, there's the discussion we'll get into later a little bit about how exercise actually directly turns on the GLUT4 transporter, which is an antidote to this insulin resistance problem. Okay, so the, the fascinoma for me in reading this book is how many redundant pathways there are to allow us to survive. And those redundant pathways now are evolutionarily not good for us because we live in a society that says, eat lots of bad food, drink lots of drinks, and don't worry about it. Well, you have to worry about it. All right, so from the polyol perspective, the dysfunctional glucose transporter causing insulin resistance allows more glucose to head to the liver, leading to further fructose generation via the sorbitol polyol pathway and more survival switch activation. The system seems to be compounding in redundant mechanisms for fat storage and survival depending on what foods are available to eat in volume and plentiful. Amazing, amazing stuff. Now I'm going to go back to the book and read a little bit more because, again, the way he's written it is perfect. So it turns out now that we understand that producing fructose in our bodies is another part of the survival strategy. The discovery that our bodies can make fructose and that they can make enough to make us fat was a great revelation. It was something no one had considered before, and Miguel and I immediately wanted to know more about the polyol pathway, how it's turned on. Indeed, it dawned on us that other foods we're eating might also be converted to fructose in our body. We realized that we and the rest of the scientists studying sugar had only been looking at half of the equation, how much fructose was being eaten. It might be equally as important to understand the factors driving how much fructose we make. While the best known way of activating the pyol pathway was elevated blood glucose levels in uncontrolled diabetes, other conditions had also been shown to stimulate fructose production. What struck me was that these were all conditions in which activating the survival switch might be helpful. For example, the polyol pathway is activated by dehydration, as when an animal does not have adequate water. This makes sense, as the fat accumulation stimulated by fructose would provide a source of metabolic water. Likewise, the pathway is activated when blood pressure drops, reducing blood flow to our organs and tissues, which can mean they do not get nutrients they need to function. The generation of fructose helps us hold on to salt, raising blood pressure and improving circulation. Conditions such as a heart attack in which the blood supply to heart tissue is compromised or situations where oxygen levels are low activates this polyol pathway as well. Fructose production in these conditions might be beneficial by suppressing the function of our oxygen-dependent energy factories, the mitochondria, thereby reducing oxygen needs. Our group also found that the polyol pathway could additionally stimulate, be stimulated by fructose itself, or rather by uric acid generated during fructose's metabolism which could act as an amplifying system to assist survival. In other words, the conditions that stimulate our body to produce fructose are the same ones in which it would be desirable to activate this survival switch. This suggests that the polyol pathway, due to its unique ability to produce fructose, is likely used as a backup survival plan when fructose-rich foods could not be found. The generation of fructose is therefore a response to stress that aids survival, but let's think back to nature. In nature, the best option is not to be caught in a disaster unprepared, but rather to be ready when it happens. This is why animals activate the survival switch before they hibernate or migrate long distances. And if they can do this by eating fruits and honey rich in fructose, could they also do so by triggering fructose production? Might there be foods, for example, that mimic a crisis, such that the body would activate the polyol pathway and generate fructose to protect us from the winter to come? So he lays out a great case, again, for the redundancies of our system. Fruit sugar is there available to us to eat in the spring, in the fall, whenever it's in season, to load up to gain fat to survive the period of time when it's not available. 
in the absence of that ability, there are other backup systems set up to help us gain weight if we need to. And the body makes fructose via the polyol pathway when glucose levels are high, i.e. uncontrolled diabetes, the body is dehydrated, blood pressure is low, blood supply is impaired, for example, during a heart attack, oxygen levels are low, for example, during high altitude activities, uric acid levels are high, or fructose is ingested. And actually, alcohol has a play in this because alcohol will cause dehydration, but it also has the ability of having the um, beer specifically to have umami, which is a, a savory taste. Those are also known to trigger the polyol pathway. Salt excess is known to trigger the polyol pathway. And he goes through in the book discussing how deer lick salt. And when they lick salt, it helps them survive by gaining fat. I mean, these are just incredible adaptations of mammals and humans specifically also to survive. I mean, I, I just find this stuff to be unbelievably fascinating. So again, I'm reading parts of the book, but I think for the listener, I highly, highly encourage you to buy this book and read the whole thing. It is so well done. The other part of the insulin resistance puzzle is that the more you move in theory and in study, the more calories you will have to burn to generate ATP. And therefore, you will need more GLUT4 transporters to go to the cell surface to allow glucose into the muscle for burning. This process is unrelated to food ingestion, and the exercise induces these GLUT4 transporters will be produced regardless of your diet and regardless of insulin. So movement, therefore, is a direct antidote for the insulin resistance story that we're talking about. And the converse is true. When you choose to sit all day long while we, are eat like, while we eat like a king or queen, we promote fat storage and further insulin resistance. And realize, again, that this is compounded by the fact that when you're consuming fructose or turning on these survival switch pathways, you have foraging behavior, you have slowed metabolic rates, and you feel more tired. So therefore, you're less likely to move. Therefore, you're less likely to turn on these GLUT4 transporters in the muscle, and therefore, you're likely to become even more insulin resistance. I mean, this stuff just gets more and more fascinating over time. So, you know, I think at this point, I'm going to switch to a couple of small parts of the book um, because I, there's just way too much in here to go through, you know, piece by piece. But you got the main part of the story right now. The uricase mutation allowed us to get excess uric acid, which, which then drives a set of switches that help us to gain weight to survive periods of metabolic caloric deprivation then in the absence of the ability to find fructose or fruit sugar, our body has the ability to make it itself during, as stated, periods of uh, dehydration, sodium intake, alcohol intake, um, and excess glucose ingestion or other discussed pathways. So the whole system is geared redundantly to help us survive periods of food scarcity. And the mechanisms as laid out by Dr. Johnson are beautiful not simple, but the end of the story is the same. They are now being hijacked by our current health system where we uh, sit and eat the wrong foods and tell people, here are the drugs that you can take to mitigate these risks when in fact, it's not stopping most of the problems. We're just temporizing them. We're taking medicines to try and control problems that we are causing in of ourselves by our behaviors, right? Again, if we could find ways to limit the consumption of fructose, limit dehydration, limit alcohol consumption, move more often, uh, do all of the antidotes to the survival switches being turned on, we have an opportunity here for change that would then mitigate the need for medicine and disease onset. And that to me is the key, right? Learning all this stuff isn't really valuable if you're not going to do anything about it. You know, learning this stuff is a primer into the understanding as to the why it exists, but then it is the catalyst point for which we should all leap to make better decisions about our health and our children's health moving forward. Now I want to switch to discuss a couple other things. One, I thought he had an interesting point here on page 160 where he talks about sports drinks, right? So one of the first findings um, with, with sports drinks was that optimal performance occurred at glucose concentrations of 6%. Higher concentrations actually hindered performance. Next was the discovery that the addition of small amounts of fructose to the glucose improved performance further, as the fructose enhanced the absorption of glucose in the gut and led to greater glucose delivery to the muscle and improved performance, even when total calorie intake was kept the same. 
Additional studies showed that the fructose content always had to be lower than the glucose content for higher amounts of fructose caused dramatic worsening of performance. While there is debate, my ideal sports drink would be about 4% glucose and 1-2% fructose, with a salt concentration of about one half gram per liter. This would provide about 4-5 to five grams of fructose in an 8-ounce drink, an amount small enough that it would be metabolized in the intestine rather than activating the survival switch. By contrast, soft drinks, which are dehydrating and worsen performance, are about 6% fructose and 5% glucose. Similarly, when our collaborators administrated solutions containing 5% fructose and 3% glucose to laboratory rats they, that are mildly dehydrated from heat stress, such solutions worsen their hydration status and cause damage. So the takeaway is sports drinks can prevent and treat dehydration during vigorous exercise and also may help individuals suffering from illness who are dehydrated from diarrhea or vomiting. Having some glucose and small amounts of fructose leads to improved performance and does not increase the risk of obesity. I do not, however, recommend sports drinks when one is not exercised or ill. That was what Dr. Johnson stated. Another piece of critical information is that folks who exercise a lot are all in better shape from a mitochondrial perspective. And that is a reason why <clears throat> they do better when they do consume fructose. You know, a common reason that, that young people exist the way they do is because when you're younger, your mitochondria haven't had a chance to be damaged as much. And when you're an athlete, your mitochondria are generally more robust because you're producing more of them for your athletic activities. You know, these healthier energy factories of the mitochondria are more resistant to fructose-driven oxidative stress that triggers a survival switch in the first place. So we view these situations as as ways, again, as an antidote to disease. So the more you exercise, the healthier mitochondria are, the more resistant they are to the oxidative damage of the, the uric acid. Dr. Johnson also noted that the fact that young people, and especially athletic individuals with healthy mitochondria, are relatively resistant to the effects of fructose is why you see such variability in studies when they look at fructose in given individuals. The industry that supports the production of high fructose corn syrup and wants it in our foods prefers to give glucose, I mean fructose and high fructose corn syrup to young, athletic, and healthy people who will show minimal or no effects uh, of a single dose of, or a short course of fructose, whereas the same amount of fructose given to an individual with obesity or insulin resistance will have a substantial metabolic effect because they have more risk. And remember from earlier discussions that antioxidants consumed via food as plant-based high quality, what they call ORAC scale, so blueberries, uh, broccoli, spinach, uh, green tea, the antioxidants that are found naturally in these plants, when we consume them, they actually counteract the effect of the uric acid-induced oxidative damage in the mitochondria as well, so sort of acting like an athlete. So there's multiple ways to start to counteract the effects of, of bad food, but ideally, honestly, the best way is just don't consume the bad food. The key to understanding dietary changes needs to be understanding what foods are good for you. So we think about macronutrients, the most important food we consume a lot of is carbohydrate. And understanding how carbohydrates work by understanding glycemic index and load, you know, is very important. You can understand that by reading the Nourish Your Tribe book that Nicole Magrita wrote, or in Dr. Johnson's book on page 170 starts to break down glycemic load. And essentially that's how fast a food um, type carbohydrate turns to glucose in the body uh, and that is tied to the fiber load or the meta metabolic rate of how it's broken down in the body. So I'm not going to get into explaining all of that right now, but just suffice it to say that the more fiber attached to a food like beans and, and, and cruciferous vegetables and berries, they tend to metabolize slower so they're not as big of a sugar spike, whereas white bread, pizza, those kind of things could be real train wrecks. So Dr. Johnson has a diet he calls a switch diet, and he states sugar should be reduced to intake of 10% of daily calories with 5% as a long-term goal, eliminate all sugary drinks completely. Carbohydrates, reduce high glycemic carbohydrates, emphasize whole grains, low glycemic vegetables, and high fiber foods. Limit fruit to three to four servings daily, separated with half servings for high glycemic varieties. Avoid dried fruit, fruit juices, fruit syrups, and fruit concentrates. For protein, he states, limit high umami proteins like red meats, organ meats, and shellfish. Emphasize fish, poultry, dairy, and vegetable proteins. For fat, he says emphasize monounsaturated and omega-3 fats. 
Omega-3 fats come primarily from fish. Saturated fats can account for up to 10% of the total caloric intake. Reduce salt intake to 5 to 6 grams daily and limits processed food as they are often high in salt as well as sugar. Water, he says, drink 8 ounces of water 6 to 8 times a day. Keep your hydration level up. Dairy is generally recommended, especially milk in his diet. Butter and cheese are fine if LDL cholesterol levels are controlled. High umami, cheese, high umami cheeses should be limited. Coffee and tea are recommended. Dark chocolate is encouraged. Alcohol, reduce it or eliminate it completely. If you must drink, sip rather than drink quickly and alternate with water. And he likes the idea of taking vitamin C supplements daily to counteract the oxidation effect. So there you have it, folks. A breakdown of nature wants us to be fat. Again, I can't say this strongly enough. I think everybody should read the entire book. I would encourage you to go to Amazon. It went on sale February 8th. Pick up a copy, read it, dog ear it. I mean, he has great stories in there. I only gave you a small sampling of some of the stories. I tried to break down the main points of, of the original podcast that he and I did, um, but also give you a little more detail and, and then come back with a little bit of the, the, the dietary ending. So I hope this was useful, meaningful, um, tied some pieces together with Jerry Shulman's work and starting to give us an understanding of, you know, as a society, what we can do for ourselves and for our kids to reduce the long stream, uh, excuse me, long-term downstream effects of, of these metabolic pathways that we have that we are unfortunately working against because of our choices right now. So we'll get into some more of this stuff in future uh, podcasts and, and newsletters, but suffice it to say for right now, this is one of the main, main, main pieces of information that you all need to listen to and pay attention to because fructose is metabolically a major player in problems and the generation of uric acid is driving a lot of disease. And we, we really need to step forward and look at this and our children especially so we don't end up having these problems at younger and younger ages now because we're flooding these kids with more and more fruit juices and fruit sugars and sodas than ever before because high fructose corn syrup is cheap and it's subsidized by the federal government and it's everywhere and it's a problem. So with that, I'm going to finish. Hope you had a great day today. Hope this was uh, enjoyable and worth your time. As always, hug those kids. The information provided in this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only. It is not a substitute for advice and treatment provided by your physician or other healthcare professional and is not to be used to diagnose or treat a health issue. This podcast does not constitute the development of any kind of provider-patient relationship. Have a great day.